I, I'm hopeful, but also dubious that we can have like complete transformation. Like, I think these drugs can really help society become better. And, and I think we need, you know, we're in this precarious place ecologically um, where we need something to, to get us over the edge. But I, I, I think we also have to be like, realistic that um this this darkness is part of our soul too you know and that we're not gonna get like full deliverance yeah well thank you thank you for being here really appreciate it of course yeah, looking forward to it. So I get, maybe can you just start by telling us about your, your work, your, your recent research, kind of what you're, what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a background in machine learning and computer vision. Um, and the first projects I, I worked on in my PhD were about 3D mapping. Uh, and then I worked at Apple for a while uh on 3d reconstruction taking aerial photos from airplanes and then putting that into maps um and then for the past five years i've been at this place called the broad institute where we um do initially lots of genetic uh science but increasingly expanding to all kinds of uh biomedical research um, and, and I'm a tech lead for the team called uh, Machine Learning for Health. So I've been very interested in, you know, taking these machine learning models and applying them to various problems in disease prediction and uh, risk stratification, figuring out who, which people are going to develop which diagnoses, um, and genetic analyses of the diseases, trying to really just like understand um, disease progression and disease stratification and, and segmentation more. Um, and in the past few years, I've, I've initially worked mostly on cardiovascular disease and still do, but um, the past few years seeing sort of the uh, amazing success of some of these clinical trials with, with psychedelics um, have, started applying these machine learning models, uh, specifically language models, so natural language processing to uh, testimonials of drug experiences. Um, and that's, that's a, I think, a very exciting um, direction for, mm -hmm. for this research and, and a really cool kind of, um, cool coming together of both like really exciting methods in, in the machine learning space, a really huge development in the past few years of what we can do with machine learning models. Mm -hmm. um, and also just the sort of huge explosion in research on, on psychedelics. So those, that sort of interface I think is, is really exciting and we've done two research projects in, in there, and, and I'm hoping to do many more in, in the coming years. Okay, okay. So, so what you and, and your team have been doing, if, if I understand correctly, is like taking thousands of, of testimonials from, from Arrowhead from the site, and then running that through the machine learning program to try and figure out 
what's happening and, and why, basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and so what, our, our... no, I'm just curious. Like, did you, like, what specifically are you are you focused on? You're trying to figure out like what's happening neurologically, what the clinical benefits are, a little bit of everything. Like, what what's your your main motivation there? I mean, the main motivation I think is to sort to be able to optimize these experiences for whatever therapeutic outcome is desired. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and to like sort of ground it quantitatively, I think currently these are like incredibly powerful molecules. I mean, it's insane how, how powerful they are. Um, but I don't think we've we fully like harnessed that power and and um and of course it has a a dark side too where where you can have a really really challenging difficult experience um so so that's sort of the place where i think by aggregating huge amounts of data um and and sort of bringing our best methodological tools to bear on on that mm -hmm. um we can sort of figure out patterns in these in these uh experiences that are consistent and that can be sort of uh you know tether our our journeys to to hopefully the desired clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's that's sort of the immediate goal. Then there's also this sort of philosophical set of inquiries that that are really compelling, um, maybe less sort of clinically actionable, but but we're sort of pushing up against that hard problem of consciousness and like these these drugs really let you probe the conscious experience you know you, you get to see um from very wide the dynamic range of of conscious experience um mm -hmm. and and by putting our sort of quantifying methods on top of that we can start sort of chipping away at this very seemingly intractable problem of like how do we talk about the conscious experience in a precise uh, way w without sort of just everyone just has their own subjectivity and you never know what anyone else's is, is like. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, well, there's a lot to, to dig in there. I'll we'll do it bit by bit. I guess, I guess if you could, could you maybe like run us through it in a little more detail, like what the study looked like and I, specifically like, you're correlating like words that describe certain experiences with certain substances, then looking at what are the compounds that make up those substances and what are those doing in the brain and sort of what areas in the brain are they active, right? So it's trying to create like a whole like start to finish map of like what is what's going on here. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. There? So, okay, for... In this project, we are pairing together two totally different data types. One is these text reports of 
hallucinogenic experiences. Mm -hmm. And the other is um, affinity data of various drugs with various um, receptors, neurotransmitter receptors uh, that are in our brain <laughs> and our body. Um, and these two very different data sets are linked because for every testimonial, we know what drug, or at least the person reported the drug that they think they were taking. Um, and we, we use a computational approach uh, to link them together and to sort of find the consistent patterns between these two very different data sets. Mm -hmm. um, and then because we also know in other studies, people have figured out where in the brain these various receptors are expressed. Um, we can take the patterns we find in the natural language text. Um, and here, these are gonna be like conceptual patterns, like things like um, mysticism or uh, visual hallucinations or sonic hallucinations or fear or terror or bliss. You know, these are sort of concepts that come up over and over again as people are describing their experiences. Um, and we can take those sort of high level natural language, subjective experience type concepts, and then by linking them to the affinity data, and then from the affinity data, linking them to uh, the various brain regions where those receptors are expressed, we get these like subjective phenomenological concepts mapped into the physical brain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, so that was the, the whole project. Can we sort of make that uh, journey? Mm -hmm. um, and, and the particular method we used uh, find several patterns. Um, in, in this paper, we found eight different of these patterns and they're, they're patterns that <clears throat> exist simultaneously in both the sort of neurochemical realm and this conceptual realm. Mm -hmm. but, but it's like each pattern has like a double face. Like it, it might be um, visual hallucination in the conceptual realm, but mm -hmm. then on the neurochemical side, it will be like serotonin and 5-HT2A receptors. Um, you know, so, it, but, it, but as far as the method is concerned, this is like one thing that, that is found in both of these different data sets. Mm -hmm. so, and, so do you find like yeah. a one-to-one a -one correlation where it's like this mix reliably produces this experience or? You, it, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation in that every experience can have different amounts of the various patterns. So, so you could, it's possible that there will be an experience that is just purely one of these patterns. Mm -hmm. But the, the way the method works is each experience is made up of a composition of those patterns. Yeah. And a very useful analogy is um, like personality uh, factorization. Mm -hmm. where where there's sort of this 
big five and, and many different personality questionnaires, like even if the questions are totally different, have, have replicated this finding that there are sort of five different aspects of personality that, that come up repeatedly when you're asking questions about someone's personality. And they're things like neuroticism, uh, conscientiousness, extroversion versus introversion. Uh, and so every person will have, will sort of be defined by all of them. You know, mm -hmm. like every person has their, whether they're an extrovert or an introvert, and at the same time, whether they're conscientious or um, how neurotic they are. So every drug experience in, in our study has, you know, some amount of all of these concepts, but it could be really enriched for one particular one. Okay, 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 okay. And, and how, does, how does the timing play into this? Because like, and I think in, there's at least two aspects. Like one is the reports where, you know, if something's really intense at the end, that's maybe gonna overshadow the other things in the reports. But then also, I'm really curious about how that might play out neurologically, like, because some of these experiences are maybe 10, 15 minutes, and some of them are maybe 10, 15 hours, right? And yeah. so the, the way that the different receptors are activated in different times, the brain areas are activated at different times, like, it seems like it's, it, it may be far more complex than just kind of like, oh, you activate this, and then this happens. It's, it's like a, a symphony. Right. And, and yeah. it, it's all about timing and combinations and and the the way it plays out will have a very different sort of emotional effect or, or visual effect or whatever. Totally. Um, and this study just lumped everything into one experience and one sort of affinity profile. So the, this first study did not consider time, really. It just considered that here are all the words you use to describe your experience. And the, the natural language approach that we used there is called a bag of words approach. Mm -hmm. And what that literally means is we just threw all the words into a bag. We didn't worry about which, what their order was. So we don't even, and, and that's still not even chronological time. That's just like the time in the narrative. Mm -hmm. But in our, in our, the next project we did was very much uh, motivated by this question that you brought up, which is like, there, there's this whole temporal dynamics to, to the experience. Um, and, but I think that's something that we, we wanna, you know, even drill much deeper into in the future because the, um, the sort of unfolding of the experience as it's described in words after the fact is very different from the sort of second by second and minute by minute um, metabolism of, of these molecules and also the subjective experience, which can have like incredible peaks and valleys um, that are really different for different compounds. Like DMT is incredibly fast acting and then you'll have LSD trips that can last for like 12 hours. Um, so there's a huge, huge range in there that um, we weren't even looking at in, in this first paper. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what do you think, like what are, what are your takeaways? Like when you're, you've looked at, you know, tens of thousands of, of trip reports and you've got all yeah, this yeah. data and it's like, what, do you, what is your takeaway from, from all this? Like, yeah. When, um, it's 
there's this poem by um, W.B. Yeats mm -hmm. uh, that that contains the line like the soul pinned to the dying animal. Hmm. Um, and when we ex and and I feel like that's a really beautiful sort of summary of the human condition where it's like we have we have this body we carry around that has these very sort of basic animal needs and desires um that that you know plants us in the earth um and you know needs to be fed and needs to breathe air wants to have sex and wants to like um just be here in the ground <laughs> um and and then we have like this mind uh which can like do mathematics and contemplate the cosmos and and the big bang and um and so we have you know and it's this incredible divide <laughs> that mm. that each person sort of walks um and what was so beautiful especially when we started looking beyond just the hallucinogenic drugs and and in our latest paper we look at 52 different molecules spanning like antidepressants stimulants uh psychedelics uh but also uh antipsychotics like a lot of pharmaceutical drugs as well uh mm -hmm. delirients and and what you see as like the dominant factor is something that maps really nicely to this W.B. Yeats quote of, of the soul pinned to the dying animal. You have these words that feel very animal and, and sort of everyday and quotidian. It's things like work, school, addiction, depression, uh, pain, that, that forms one extreme. And then on this other extreme, you've got words like consciousness, universe, world, ego, light, sky, you know, and it's, it's this sort of divide that that I think Yates is talking about in that poem, and you just see it in this data. Um, so my, my number one takeaway was, was sort of finding that because we didn't pro, you know, we didn't say like, look at these drugs and compare them to the antipsychotics or the antidepressants mm -hmm. that that just falls out from from the data um but it was so recognizable it was so something i've thought about my whole life and and i think every human sort of engages with this dynamic that we have where where we can think about anything you know it's like the mind is incredible what what it can do but also like um you need to eat and you you know and you you have and you need a shit like you you have these very basic needs that keep coming up and you mm -hmm. keep having to deal with it every day of your life yeah <laughs> um and so that seeing that come out of the data was was um beautiful yeah yeah and so you were seeing like certain classes of compounds or types of of drugs were sort of more focused yeah. on the quotidian terrainal aspects yes. and then and then the other word were taking us into another sphere yeah, yeah. exactly and it yeah. was sort of on the on the mystical extreme 
it's the usual suspects like it, it's the psychedelics and yeah. dmt and and the more powerful psychedelics sort of more extreme on, on that side of the spectrum Mm-hmm. On the other side of the spectrum, when we first saw it, we were a little confused because it's not really a typical pharmacological grouping. You have drugs like cocaine, as well as the SSRI, like you have antidepressants, and then you have stimulants, and then you have MDMA is actually, um, you know, more towards the, the sort of dying animal side than the mm. uh, mystical side. But once we, you know, after sort of digesting the results and and, and talking about it, it, it became clear that, I mean, because on other axes, you get these axes of, of emotion where MDMA sort of jumps out as it's just like this mole- this love molecule. It's very an apt name for it. But yeah. but on this major axis of, of sort of the dying animal and uh, the mystical experience, MDMA lands closer to to these other sort of somatic drugs, uh, mm-hmm. whether they're um, analgesics or antidepressants or antipsychotics or stimulants. You know, so it's like hmm. with there's a lot of variety within the drugs that are addressing various of uh, these quotidian bodily concerns, but but they are united in that they're you know putting you in your body in a different way rather yeah. than giving you this sort of mental landscape uh, of, of vision. Yeah, yeah, huh. that's interesting. That's interesting. And I guess it's, it's also interesting to me, like I, I, I don't know much about like how drugs are developed or how they're studied or whatever, but I imagine there's a lot more data around, you know, pharmacological drugs that have been developed in a laboratory. And it seems like almost in a way you're, what you're doing is almost, like reverse engineering and sort of like, like doing that process backwards, you know, of like, rather than saying, okay, we know what receptors we want to activate. How are we going to do it? It's like, okay, we know these work. What receptors are they activating? What's going on here? Yeah, that, a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's also, I think this idea of like natural language, like meeting the, the user where they are on their words in their footing is actually not usually a part of drug development, even for these mental health disorders. Yeah. I mean, questionnaires are, are definitely used uh, clinically, but they also use things like this forced swimming test. Like that's sort of, which is this, uh, it also, it used to be called the behavioral despair test. Um, or it's also I'm sometimes dark. called that. And it's, yeah. they just put rats in a tube of water um, yeah. and just see how long they struggle. You know, they can't get out, but they can, they can either just float there helplessly or they can try to like swim yeah. uh, to escape. And the length of time that they try to swim before just giving up is used as a quantifier for how good uh antidepressant is <laughs> um <laughs> so it's it's like the the sort of lab driven metrics that that we've used to justify the the applications to mental health of these molecules to me seem pretty pretty suspect and and just pretty far removed from 
the thing you're actually trying to treat, which is the subjective experience that people have. Like they feel yeah. depressed. That that's something that's happening in their mind. Yeah. Um, and and so I'm excited about taking people's own words as like the metric that we're working on because that that feels much closer than like how long a rat is gonna fidget in its tube right. you know right yeah yeah wow I, that makes me wonder if it might be good for like triathlons or something to try to accessorize <laughs> and see how it goes yeah totally <laughs> well i do think like the marathon runners and ultra marathon runners they there have been some studies where they they experience pain in a different way yeah. or you know they have less sensitivity to it yeah um yeah i can i can vouch for that i think that's, <laughs> that's huge i just i just got done with uh it's like three ultras in, in, in three days and uh oh wow pain was a big part of it for sure <laughs> ultra marathon yeah 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 three yeah. of them in three days yeah yeah it was my my oh first my experience and it was i mean wow. it was sort of a it was basically like a, a psychological test for myself like i've been training yeah. i don't know five to ten times less than recommended um physically <laughs> just tra mainly training my physiology and um training my mind and really trying to yeah, get into yeah. like a meditative state and uh powerful stuff wow wow where was it in in spain so i'm, I'm based in spain and it was it was yeah. the island of menorca which is in in the mediterranean oh, cool. and we just ran ran around the, the island wow yeah it was, it was intense <laughs> cool cool yeah. yeah so yeah i mean i don't i don't have a lab but i <laughs> i do all the, the tests that i can on myself just totally playing around with different different forms of consciousness you know yeah. Were you, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what was the psychedelic part of the experience or just meditation? It's definitely been a part of my training. Um, yeah, yeah. I find for longer runs, it, um, it messes with like my water intake too much. Yeah. So like psychologically it's, it's great. Um, but, but physiologically I it, it can't handle, especially if it's hot and, and a lot of yeah. uphill. Um, yeah. Yeah not a good mix for me or i haven't found the right mix right right, right. but I, i'm yeah. definitely a fan of like microdosing and going on trail runs and okay as well and that's that's definitely yeah that's definitely part of my training fascinating yeah cool <laughs> yeah yeah and it's i mean it it seems to me like so much of what i i appreciate that there is a distinction between the corporeal and the, the mystical right but it also seems like there's an intimate connection as well, you know, and, and oh, yeah. so many practices of like, if you look at all the sort of traditional practices in, in different cultures throughout the world, psychedelics have, have been there, but it's also been things like, you know, dancing rhythmically for three days without eating or drinking or, you know, running hundreds of kilometers or, you know, all these things where it's like, or, or breath work or yoga, whatever it is, but, but through the body, through our physiology, we can create different experiences of of ourselves of the world you know of whatever and that that connection to me is just endlessly fascinating yeah 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 absolutely and it, in that yates quote it's like pinned the soul is pinned to this dying animal like they they are as you said they're totally connected yeah. um and in the sort of component as we call it that that came out from from the research 
this is one component that that just it's like a a spectrum or an axis and and at one extreme you have the mystical experience and at the other extreme you have this like addicted bot depressed body experience but it's you like every drug lands somewhere along that same single axis so mm -hmm. so the method was also saying like this is one thing and it's describes all the drugs by by giving them a rating just like a person yeah. can be extroverted or introverted it's like you're talking about the same thing but you get your own rating along that scale right 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 okay okay and i, I guess i'm curious like have have uh, fmri scans been done to try and look at this stuff in real time like I've, i know a fair amount has been done with with meditation um there's been a little bit with psychedelics but like how does how does your methodology and looking at like the receptors tie into brain scans and trying to look at this stuff in real time yeah 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 where so right this is not using M fmris at all this is just using language and the so i'd say the connection to the brain is probably much more tenuous in an approach like this than when you're actually physically mapping it like with a fmri um that said that we we did see some uh sort of corroboration of, of things that have been found um in fmri studies specifically as related to the default mode network um and these sort of components that were really strong in um psychedelics uh, were, you know, were placed in the visual cortex, um, and, uh, the salience network and, and not sort of in this default mode network. And I think that's one, at least big finding, um, you know, still early days. Uh, but, but I think there, there's definitely this idea in the field that things like meditation, as well as things like psychedelics have this effect of quieting your your default mode network and it's a deactivation really mm -hmm. um you, we might sort of guess at the onset that like with a drug that ha seems subjectively so profound and so rich that it would correspond to like increased activation in the brain mm -hmm. but um it's seeming like the opposite is true um and, and that meditation also has this effect of sort of quieting the default mode networks um, activity. Yeah. Yeah, so so they're very different methods. Um, and we would love to start using some of, some of that methodology. Another um, aspect of this study was we just used data that was already out there. We didn't actually have to collect any data, um, which is cool, but, but we would, going forward, we would love to start um, collecting data too and, and setting this up in a more controlled uh arena right now we're just using these like big data public repositories that definitely have lots of noise you know people don't always know the dose they're taking and sometimes you know these drugs are gotten illegally they might not even you know the someone might misrepresent what the drug is to to the user so yeah. there's lots lots of noise that in a clinical setting we could work our way around yeah yeah oh. 
but but that said i mean it seems like with the this year volume of data is a strong counterpoint against it i mean the first study was like exactly seven thousand the second yeah, one was almost yeah, yeah. was it twelve thousand thirteen thousand yeah 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 that's that's the numbers and that's where machine learning really helps us um because these new machine learning models are like data hungry and they can really scale to to these large data sets whereas um the studies on fmris are usually like dozens of participants at at most um so you do get you get a lot more noise by using this kind of data but you also get huge huge numbers so yeah uh yeah there are definitely advantages as well yeah yeah and if we could just zoom in a little bit on, on what you said about the default mode network i mean it seems like it's it's supporting the idea of like the brain as a reducing valve right where it's like there's so much going on and the only way we can survive is to to reduce it into like the simplest possible units and so we're not experiencing the world as it is we're experiencing like a, basically a, a controlled hallucination a virtual reality representation of, of reality right and so then to me like if if we take that as our working hypothesis it's it's like okay so then does that mean or does it imply that if we sort of shut down that that filter and we open ourselves up to a wider range of experience like what does that suggest philosophically about the value of what we're seeing to me like that to me more than the hard problem of consciousness like that's the the real question of like what is what's the ontology here are we revealing a deeper truth or are we just like messing around with chemicals in our brain and getting random effects can we know the difference like is it even possible to adjudicate between those so i'm, yeah, I'm just curious yeah. to hear your, your perspective on that like yeah um I don't know that we can adjudicate the difference between those two. I, but I do think messing around with chemicals in your brain sort of describes everything, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like that, that is what conscious experience is. Um, I guess they're electrochemicals if we wanted to, to be precise, but that, that seems to be what the conscious experience is. And, mm -hmm in in this very almost tautological way that's the only thing we can be sure of you know like we we could be brains in a vat this could be a simulation but even in those scenarios our conscious experience is real mm -hmm. and is the only real thing mm -hmm. um and i think So, so whatever sort of, there's something funny about the psychedelic experience, which is the sense of its truth is, is ineffable, inarguable when, when you're feeling it. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and I think maybe that that is just like that's not wrong, <laughs> yeah. even though it might not it might not correspond more to physical reality. But I think it's like it is a perfect mapping to the truth of conscious, you know, the truth that you're having a conscious experience. And, and as you become more like transparent to that 
Um, and that's why I think it sort of makes sense that it's a reduction. It's like that that is all there is in a, that that we can be sure of. And I think you know a lot of what the default mode network does is sort of um, tell tell you a story that's helpful for survival, mm -hmm. but and sort of takes you away from this deeper truth of just like you are in awareness and and that's actually what's happening mm -hmm. um so yeah i think the it's very tempting especially when you're in the psychedelic experience to sort of consider it like a a telescope onto the world or you know like you're you're getting a new um insight about the world but i think i think it's just it's like a telescope that's just pointing inward um yeah. but but all of those realizations do feel true and feel true in a way that like science can never can't the truths of science can't quite get that uh, solid, you know, we could always do another experiment and, and maybe find there's a deeper story uh, to the physical world. Whereas mm -hmm. I think like a conscious awareness as a truth in itself, you don't, you know, if you're, if you can just be with that, I don't know that you can get that there's anything else, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot because I think it's, I think a lot of times those things get confused and um, contemporarily and historically, you know, and there's this idea of like, it's a, a higher truth or a higher dimension or, you know, which is, it's definitely understandable. I can see why people feel that way, but there's just so much evidence to the contrary of like people seeing visions and then it doesn't happen, you know, or, or yeah, like revealing yeah, yeah. some grand truth and, and then you know, then the temptation is to say, well, okay, so if that's not true, maybe none of it's true, but it's like, well, wait a minute, what if we can differentiate between sort of objective external reality and conscious reality? And it could maybe not be the best tool to learn about external objective reality. Although, you know, there, there definitely many discoveries have been made using psychedelics and, and currently are being made and advances in technology and all of that. But, but we could see that almost as incidental, right? And maybe what it's doing is, is it's just, as you say, like allowing us to come into to closer contact with our conscious experience, you know, and seeing ourselves from a new angle. You know? Yeah, that's a yeah. I think that's a it's a good way to to navigate that that sort of. Yeah, I um, mean, I I do think the especially with drugs like DMT, where you have this incredible consistency of people seeing entities. Mm -hmm. and beings that um, are otherworldly, <laughs> you know, like these lizard people or alien yeah. computers. And, uh, you know, there's something to like the suggestibility and that like DMT has this reputation of doing that. And so people see, you know, so people manifest it. Yeah. At the same time, it's, it's really curious that, that, you take this molecule and you see 
these creatures, you know, and it's very, very prevalent experience across, you know, we, now we're looking at hundreds, thousands of DMT experiences. And it's mm -hmm. very common that, that people describe these entities and creatures. Um, and I know Terrence McKenna was asked like, so are you going into this dimension where these creatures exist? Um, yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, it, and it's, Yeah, and maybe they don't need to exist in a physical reality, um, you know. And then you can get into these sort of pan psychist types of conversations where it's like, is physical reality even? Is it ultimately some kind of conscious entity? Mm -hmm. um, in which case, yeah, maybe maybe the lizard people are real in their own way <laughs> right yeah i mean I, i'm tempted to see it as a reflection of like a commonality between i don't know if it's neurological structures or ways ways of thinking ways of being like i don't know there's been some really interesting studies done like not not anything to do with psychedelics but just the way different cultures conceive of different diseases and i don't i don't remember all the details but it, it, was, it was a few years ago but i remember reading about like anorexia in Japan. And it was consistently described as like, you have a ghost living in your stomach and you just, you couldn't feed the ghost. Like you couldn't eat more because it would be feeding the ghost and it would kill you. And that was like, you know, it's a very old way of, of thinking. Um, but up until, I don't know, six, seven years ago, whenever I read this article, that was still like very, very common in Japan. And they were studying how the expansion of Western media and Western media descriptions of things like, yeah, anxiety, depression, anorexia, like really, really common afflictions, how that changes the way people experiences it and it changes their symptoms as well, you know? And so I, I think, yeah, it's just such a, it's such a complex subject. You know, our minds are not, not simple by any means, you know? And it's, it's just the fact that it's on Arrowhead and, and, you know, you say, yeah, there's, there's thousands of descriptions, but it's like anyone who posts on there had access to all those other descriptions as well, you know? So it's like, yeah, the suggestibility thing gets gets tricky for sure. Totally, totally. Uh, and I, and I think it's it, you know as as the um, the placebo effect gets studied more and more and, and is getting sort of less demonized and more valued for like this amazing capacity that we have. I think that's something that's like another component of the therapeutics of of psychedelics. It's like depending on the way you conceive of it, like you have a pretty good chance of like transforming your, your experience with it. And so like, if you go into the experience with a certain perspective and a certain sort of set of expectations and, and beliefs around it, like that's going to probably have a very powerful effect on the way that, that you actually experience it and the real world effects it has on you. Yeah. 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 It's like the placebo squared kind of, you know, because like the, the thing you're modulating really is probably also the thing that does the placebo effect. You know, it's like your, your subconscious. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It, cause, and the placebo effect is so powerful if, yeah. if we could harness it, you know, it's. 
Yeah, and I mean, and that's, I mean, I think that if we look at you know meditation as as an analog for for psychedelic effects, like I think, you know, in, in a different framework, I think that's what a lot of what meditation practice is, is about. Is you know, it starts out generally speaking with you know just awareness of of breath or you know mindfulness, sort of quieting the mind, but then inevitably you reach a stage of, of like having mantras and having teachings where it's like you're told sort of what to find and you're told to find oneness and unity and compassion and love and like oh and behold that's what people find you know and, it, and it, it's sort of diabolical but i'd be really curious to see like what if you're told what you're going to find is like you are the supreme being all other beings are worthless like you have to dominate the earth like would, would that work as well you know i, I don't yeah. know what the, what the limits are to suggestibility <sighs> Yeah. yeah i've i've wondered about that too um and also just the there do seem to be such palpable limits you know like the placebo effect for flying doesn't you know like i, I can't do that or just like <laughs> you know it's, i i had this one psychedelic experience where I sort of set this intention to see a dragon. Like I really mm -hmm. wanted to see a dragon. And it was a really wonderful day. And we went on this hike and we were just surrounded by flies and then dragonflies. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like, it found a way of being true that didn't like really require, um, a huge alteration to my understanding of the physical world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that just, it's, it does seem like limited and grounded. So I, but, mm -hmm. but I don't know exactly where those, those limits are. Right. Um, right. I mean, and I've, I've definitely met people who think there are no limits that that you could you know with enough practice and enough um sort of mental clarity any experience can be sort of manifest yeah um but that yeah. does not coincide with with what my experience has been like right right yeah that's a I don't know. I think it's it's most interesting as an open question. Like wherever the limits are, I think it's it's in our best interest to keep keep pushing at them. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, totally. And it's I don't know. I'm tempted to make a differentiation between like controlling sort of your own internal states versus you know bending spoons or, or flying or something like that, where it's like you're having an effect on the external world. And it's it's. I mean, there's definitely lots of examples, even in, like far more quotidian examples of like running a mile under four minutes or or free diving more than 100 meters where it's like there was very good scientific evidence saying it was impossible and like no one was ever going to be able to do it and then you know someone did it yeah. and it's like oh wait a minute so the limits we thought existed maybe maybe they don't you know and and, and so much of that is mental you know you saw it with the, the four minute mile it's a classic example where like you know people have been trying to do it for forever and then the within months of the time the first person did it, ben, Roger Bannister, there was, I don't know, a dozen more people did it like very quickly yeah, yeah. after. It's like that psychological yeah. barrier was gone and all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's possible we can do it, you know? And so how much of, when we say, you know, there's, okay, there's, there's a limit to uh, the placebo effect, for example, like 
how much of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, another one which I, I think about is just somehow like in my body was the intelligence to build this body. I mean, in collaboration with my mom and the environment, but like somehow my cells like started from just this fertilized egg and then made this full human. Yeah. And like, so I still have that somehow, right? Like in in some way, my body has that intelligence, though I don't, you know, it's not even understood scientifically how, the whole process um, of, of embryological development and, you know, like how the hand knows when to stop growing and, and how the, you know, the incredible orchestration that's necessary to, to build the human body, but somehow my, my cells know it. Yeah. And so can I harness that, you know, like, can I make it like another little clone? Like yeah. I should have that knowledge. Um, or I do have that knowledge in, in some way, um, yeah. but do, but it doesn't. Do you know the work of, of Dr. Michael Levin? No. Oh man, you gotta check him out. I d- I did three interviews with him. He's he's brilliant. He's at where is he? I think he's at Tufts. He's somewhere somewhere in Boston. And he, okay. he work he works a lot with this. So he works with like um, bioelectricity. And basically, what he says is like our cells are running on bioelectrical programs. And so what he does is he modulates the bioelectricity in the cells and like causes it to run another program. And so it, until now, almost all his research has been with, done with reptiles. And now he's starting to do it with mammals as well. But basically like he can program the cells of a frog to like regenerate a leg or yeah, to, wow. to like grow the head of another species or to yeah. like grow, grow its eye, a fully functioning eye on its back. Like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And it, it's all with like super targeted um, biological st- stimulation where it's basically what he says. Is it's like, yeah, it's our bodies are the hardware and the biological signals are, are the software. And so he uses some kind of AI program that, that he and his team developed where they can, they just like run through all these different models and experiment and see like, okay, we'll try running this program or that program. But it, it's something where like, with the frogs for example i think it was like a few hours of, of bioelectrical stimulation and then like two weeks growing a new leg and then it just stopped like a fully formed leg and that was enough it didn't, didn't do anything yeah. like proliferating anything so like yeah wild wild stuff but but tapping into like he, he talked about like nested levels of, of cognition where it's like you have a cellular level of cognition an organ level of cognition a neurological level and you know the brain is just like the fastest iteration of this same technology. But, but if you look at it on like a biomolecular level, it's, it's, yeah, it's not that we're, we're just building off the same building blocks again and again, just making them a little more sophisticated, a little bit faster, a little bit more capable. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's wildly fascinating stuff. <laughs> it's really yeah. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And just how how little is still known about the cell biology. It's just there. There's so much we don't yet understand. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 like, I guess bring it bring it back to the psychedelics in the mind. It's like there's. I guess it's less surprising that things like depression or anxiety, which we think of typically as as neurological 
disorders, like that those can be dealt with effectively through psychedelics, but also it can be physical disorders, you know, and, and things like, like autoimmune disease. And I mean, a, a really wide spectrum of things that are seemingly unrelated, people can successfully manage by using psychedelics, you know, and it's, it, again, it just puts pressure on this question of like, what, what's going on here? Like how, what are the mechanisms? How is that happening? And I, I, I guess I, I really like your formulation of like, maybe it's just aligning the neurological processes, allowing us to reach a healthier state internally. And that's just sort of trickles down throughout, throughout the body. Yeah. I mean, certainly things like immunity or um, addiction, which manifest as very like somatic and like have clear diagnostic criteria that maybe are like measurable and biomarkers. Yeah. It's still just like one, you know, we're one organism and, and like the brain is plugged into, to all of that. So yeah, I feel like it's a nice distinction distinction to have like physiology versus psychology but I think it's increasingly specious you know like these these things bleed into each other and so so much of like the genetics of your brain is also related to like your BMI Hmm. um and and certainly that's going to be true for for things like um autoimmunity where it's like this self-regulation uh, run amok. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. And so, so do you see like, if, if you're thinking about moving forward with your research and like where, where you want to take this, are you, are you seeing it as like using the drugs we have or the, I don't know, the, the chemical compounds we have more effectively. It's about developing new ones. It's about combining them in novel ways. Like where, where do you see this heading? What do you, what's your ideal? Yeah. Outcome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I am pretty amazed by the molecules we already have. Yeah. Um, I think they're, they're really powerful and, you know, have not been fully sort of characterized what, what they can do. I think we're still, as you mentioned, like we're still finding there are applications for these molecules that are surprising. Um, so, in terms of like priority, I think we've got a lot to work with already. So I'm not, I don't think it's super high priority to start engineering new molecules. I mean, yeah. I think there's like a business interest in, in that because it's sort of easier to, to patent and to create um, a business around a new molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the some of the models we're building by grounding them molecularly, we may get sort of new molecular insights into sort of tweaks that, that we might want to do. So I that is an interest, but I think priority-wise, um, mapping, you know, with with better and better controls, mapping the acute psychedelic experience to the various outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we, the biggest hurdle 
as I see it in, in doing that is really data. We don't, we don't have good enough data or, or good enough follow-up. Like that's, I think the, the thing that you really don't get from Arrowhead where you have these descriptions of the acute experience, but you never hear from the person again. Yeah. I think what, what's been so amazing about some of these clinical trials is you have one or two interventions and six months later, a year later, people are still basking in their uh, revelations, you know? Yeah. That's such a departure from how psychiatric medicine has been working in, in the past, where you have to take a drug every single day. And, and we don't even really know the long-term toxicity or uh, implications of some of these molecules. Um, so I think building data sets of, you know, that are both have less noise, but also have just much longer follow-up, um, and then mapping with as much like detail as we can, this acute experience, mm -hmm. um, understanding like the you know, the, like the degree of the mystical experience has been correlated with these clinical outcomes. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I think we're gonna find, well, one, what we call mystical experience is a vast array of different experiences that probably can facilitate different kinds of, of outcomes. You know, so if you're trying to treat addiction, um, there may be a certain sort of trajectory of mysticism um, and maybe it even involves some of the less desirable moments, you know, like maybe you need to really face some challenging things uh, in, in treating some of these outcomes, certainly for like um, end of life anxiety, which I think is such a important application of, of these medicines and, and has, you know, there have been clinical trials now um, advancing for, for that indication. Um, you know, I don't think just a blissed out <laughs> experience is, is what's going to help you get over that. I think you need to face the, the um, impermanence of, of this magical thing we're doing. And, and that helps you appreciate the, the, the beauty. But exactly what that trajectory looks like and like how much time you should spend uh, meditating on on death and <laughs> impermanence versus feeling like the union um mm -hmm. i think are are still you know we're we're i feel like we're really early days um and and we're sort of you know throwing these powerful molecules at, at people and, and getting incredible results but i think the results could be so much more powerful and more consistent if if we had better data um, yeah. and and longer follow-ups. Yeah, yeah, I think that that, that follow-up part is huge. Um, you know, as I, I work as a psychedelic therapist and it's in contact with quite a few people from around the world who are doing the same or similar work. And it's it's a struggle to to really figure out what works and when and why, you know? And yeah. And there's so much confusion and secrecy and people pretending like they know and they don't and blah, blah, blah. And it's, 
oh man, I would, I would love to see any advance in that I think would be a huge boon for humanity, especially now as things are becoming legalized in, in the U S um, totally. it's like, it, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that it's not, I don't think it's, it's not just the compounds. It's not just the set and setting. It's like the whole experience looking at, you know, 10 week, six month, one year time frame. Like what is the framing? How do you, how do you set things up? How do you apply the lessons learned to your, your life? And, you know, there are obviously there's a million other variables that come into play. It makes it really hard to, to sort of isolate things and, and pinpoint what works and what doesn't. But I mean, yeah, I would love to see a lot more detailed research there and, and getting a better handle on sort of how to make that process work. Because for, for me as, as a therapist, that's, that's where things get the most difficult, you know, because it's often it, it's mm-hmm. happening, you know, there's no physical contact, the person's, you know, yeah. gone home or whatever, and it's through, you know, weekly call or whatever it is. And, and, and life gets messy and so many other things get in the way. And it's no matter how many times you say ahead of time, like integration is the most important part. Uh, there's just so much hype around the experience and everyone just wants to have the experience and experience and experience. And then there's so many other people who just say, Oh yeah, the experience is all that matters. Come back and have another one, come back and have another one, you know, cause it's, it's good for business. Yeah, sure. Sure. But it's, it, I mean, my, from my perspective, it's like, I mean, one, one experience could be enough, should be enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad to have more, but it's like, let's rather than focus on having more experiences, like what if we focus on getting the most we can out of fewer experiences? absolutely yeah yeah and i think we just you know we've hardly scratched the surface on even what that what what that looks like um i guess the other so i think highest priority to me from where i stand is, is that problem of like getting the data and thinking about these clinical applications in a more sort of data driven way where we're really harvesting all the power available but going forward, I also think um, there's so many non-clinical applications that are also important. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, ultimately, I think as a conscious being, it's your birthright to explore it, you know, and that it's kind of tragic that there have been so many consciousnesses out there that haven't been encouraged to appreciate all the magic that is inherent in in being conscious you know like and and that gets back to the sort of tautological aspect of consciousness where it's like in a way it's all that matters because anything that's important to you is important to you through your consciousness of it and and you know it's the river in which meaning flows you know and so I think even, you know, not, not for addiction or end of life care or fibromyalgia, you know, like there are all these diagnoses for which there, there are going to be indications for these, these compounds. But I think also things like music appreciation or retirement, like just rites of passage can be um, made so much more powerful by by having a intentional experience with uh altering your consciousness and and so i i also see a future um 
that I hope we can get to where, where there are lots of non-clinical, but, you know, still respecting the sort of sanctity and the power of these molecules. Cause that's, I think the scariest side of, of legalization is if this becomes like cannabis or, or alcohol, where it's like, you can just get one of these molecules on the corner store without thinking about how, how powerful it can be and how uh, dangerous it can be to take it in certain circumstances. So, so I think there's a lot of work to do in sort of building the infrastructure for, for that to be safe and, and effective. And I think it definitely has to start with these clinical applications, but just sort of taking the long view of where could we go with, with these molecules. And I think so many people could benefit even, even if you don't have a, you know, debilitating disease that you, you want to treat. Um, there, yeah. there's so much benefit out there. Definitely. And I know I like, I've benefited in, in my life from them. So, yeah. and that's often taking it in a very risky, less than intentional, less than ideal, uh, set and setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm good. I'm, I'm curious to hear more. What, uh, <laughs> what, I mean, it, I know it's, it's difficult to characterize, but like, what would you say you've, you've gotten out of psychedelics? Like what is your, your relationship with psychedelics? Yeah. I, I, a lot. I, I'd say a couple experiences in nature where I remember using the phrase, um, excruciating beauty, Mm. where, where I just, one that occurred in, in Big Sur in California on the coast. Um, this was actually the one where I set the intention of finding, uh, of seeing a dragon, um, and ended up taking this hike and having dragonflies, um, swirl around me. But, but, we were just on this hill looking out at the ocean and, you know, I, I was just so in touch with the truth of this, you know, the spaceship earth. Like I, I, by having that horizon view of the water, I was sort of felt the curvature of the earth and felt the speed of our orbit. Hmm. Um, and, and the sort of precariousness of it. And, and, and it, yeah, just that, that phrase kept coming up just that, and not just that phrase, that feeling that it actually, it hurt, it ached how, how beautiful it was, how, how, um, you know, how, just how fragile life is in so many ways and, and how accidental, um, when you think of like the, the contingencies of evolution that, that we would, could evolve this way and, and the human species having like gone through these various bottlenecks where, where, you know, we almost got wiped out and then we wiped out all these other species, you know, like all the tragedy and, um, triumph <laughs> that is in our our story um but just feeling it so palpably while while looking at the ocean and just like knowing we were like hurtling through space um on this rock 
uh, yeah, <laughs> it was just, you know, that I went with this kind of silly intention of like wanting to see a dragon, like wanting to have like a frank hallucination. Um, and in a way, like I did see the dragonflies, but in a way it was the opposite. Like what, and, and this is that sort of profundity of the psychedelic experience where it's just like inarguably true. Like the things I was feeling are true. Like the earth is orbiting around the sun at like, what is it, 800 miles per second? You know, like we are moving through space at awesome speeds. Um, and we're on this big rock. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so it, it was feeling these things I know intellectually to be true, but but feeling them viscerally and and um, emotionally, you know, it's just like, yeah, very, very profound. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's so much of where the profundity comes from is is removing that barrier between thought and feeling. You know, and it's, it, yeah, we can we can get like good ideas or new insights or whatever, but so much of it oftentimes is just like, it's like you feel it in your bones, you know? Yeah. It's something you can, it's saying the sentence, it's just like, oh yeah, we're moving through space really fast, you know? Okay, cool. You know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you feel the power of that, it's, it's, it's undeniable, you know? And, and yeah, I, I, I think my sort of tentative hypothesis of, in terms of like the therapeutic benefits is that my sense is that when we're very young, our brains work that way much, much more. There's a much closer totally. connection. And I, I imagine if, if babies were capable of expressing their experience, they would be like on a psychedelic trip, like 24 seven, pretty much. Absolutely. You know? yeah. and, and it's like, and if you, we think of that as the time when we're like really vulnerable and, um, you know, vulnerable in the sense of, of we're sponges, like things just have a, a disproportionate effect on us. That's when, when we get formed, our personalities and our psychologies and all that stuff. And so it's like, if, if we're working off of patterns of, you know, some kind of trauma, which can be acute or, or very subtle, but, you know, we were patterned in some way. And it's like, somehow it seems like psychedelics are allowing us to enter into a similar state of being that we can then sort of reprogram ourselves, you know, and we can sort of, if, if we've decided, okay, this pattern isn't really working for me, I need a new pattern. It's like, this is one way to, to sort of reinstall a new, a new program. And it's, yeah, it's, totally. Yeah. And I think the neuroscience is starting to bear that out, both in that children don't seem to really have a default mode network. Like it's, it's clearly something that develops over time. And just anecdotally, like I have a two-year-old daughter and, you know, her, her ability to just be in the moment um, and to feel things so thoroughly, like she, she knows about the excruciating beauty. Yeah. <laughs> she definitely does. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think that the profundity of that experience and like the, the preciousness of that I think that's what we as a culture need. Like, so if, if we grew up in, I don't know, in the Amazon 500 years ago or whatever, like there would be a mythology there. There would be people who would say, oh, like this is the Jaguar spirit and this is what's happening and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, you go to the, the I don't know, Tangola and like you'd have another cosmology that would be explaining everything. And it's like, we're, we're at a stage where like we, we don't have a ready-made 
cosmology or mythology to, to really tell us what's going on. And it seems like that's the work we need to be doing. It's like give, giving ourselves a context for understanding so that we come to these substances with the respect they deserve, you know, and to the experience with the respect they deserve. And I think what, what you're saying is, is totally right about, you know, um, alcohol or, or these other substances where it's just this sort of casual party drug and there's no real greater understanding. And, and it's like, it seems to me like if, if we as, as a culture can develop a mature understanding and, and sort of set of practices and, and rituals and, and mythology around like, what, what is this that's happening? Like, how's the, what's the best way to approach it? We'll be doing ourselves like a tremendous service and if we don't do it my guess is they're going to get illegalized again like yeah because things are just going to get they're going to get nasty you know people are going to yeah. use them in all kinds of ways and and it's just it's not going to be pretty yeah, yeah totally totally yeah. <laughs> covering a lot of ground here <laughs> <laughs> this is good stuff, this is good absolutely. stuff. absolutely yeah, yeah. and do you do you see i don't know like do do you see that as possible do you see that we could sort of go through this gauntlet of the wild west and and come through with like a more mature cultural approach to who we are as human beings to consciousness to all of that like do, do you see that as a real possibility or yeah i mean i do and I think like, you know, a lot of my future work, I hope to spend in this space, like, you know, helping us uh, get there, or participating in, in our journey there. I do think, um, I, do, I don't think we can escape the bad trip. And I think that's like, I mean that both in a sort of individual sense and more societal. Like yeah. I I think we're we're always gonna have to sort of be weary of of the power of these molecules and of like our societal systems that have uh you know made them prohibited and and made them taboo. Um, because I think that's like a deep human concern or, or societal concern, like um, that spectrum the, of, of the dying animal to, to the soul, mm -hmm. the, I don't think we can just live on, in that mystical, blissful zone. As, like, I would love to see it, but yeah. I think it's gonna be much more like We we have to accept that we're we we've got these animal urges and and addiction and and pain and uh, inflammation are gonna be dogging us all along the way, and mm -hmm. so it's like this is a a really valuable tool in our arsenal to like keep those things in perspective and in balance, um, but. I sort of, I, I'm hopeful, but also dubious that we can 
have like complete transformation. Like I think yeah. these drugs can really help society become better. And, and I think we need, you know, we're in this precarious place ecologically um, where we need something to, to get us over the edge. But I, I, I think we also have to be like realistic that um, this, this darkness is part of our soul too, you know, and that we're not going to get like full deliverance. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's more about changing our relationship with that, that darkness. Yeah. Know? And rather than just sort of rejecting it and reacting against it and with the same violence that we're condemning, like taking yep. a more mature approach, you know, and, and yeah, developing, a, I think, yeah, de developing a deeper understanding of who we are is not going to eliminate the suffering by any means. It, it just changes our relationship with it. Yeah. yeah. Like with meditation, um, it's so you have to put in so much more work <laughs> to get like I think ultimately you kind of can get to the same places and you're, you're sort of probing the same ocean of meaning mm -hmm. um but it's so much more work <laughs> that I feel like it makes it safer in a way hmm. and that because you can take these molecules in this one-off way and they can fit into like the whole capitalist dream of like, buy this, it'll make you happy. Um, they're in a way much more risky, you know, and much much easier to co-op than yeah. if we were talking about like making meditation part of the curriculum nationwide and, you know, like getting people to, to meditate as a society, like much more, I would feel I feel much more confident predicting transformation if we could somehow get people to always to be willing to do all the work necessary. But the fact mm -hmm. that you have just this little pill and you can swallow it or this little tab of paper and yeah. the effects are so huge, it's like it really plays in to, to this easy fix dream. Mm -hmm. And I think like ultimately you have, we still have to do the work and it's still going to be really hard. And, and these are like, it's like a little bit of jet fuel to, to show you that the work is worthwhile and, and there's somewhere you can get to. Um, but yeah, I sort of feel like it's, it's much more risky because of all the ways in which it can be co-opted and, and packaged. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, if we look at the way uh, AI is going, we look at the way that sort of uh, electromagnetical um, like therapies on the brain, like yeah. are people actively working on creating like a, a helmet that you wear and you just kind of like program in like, okay, I want to feel happy. I want to feel nirvana. I want to feel whatever. And I'll just give it to you instantly, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think yeah. that's, that's that same sort of, tension you're talking about is just like it's only going to get 
more and more tense as, as technology develops, you know, and whether that's pharmacological or electro bioelectrical, yeah. or, you know, whatever it is, it's like, we're getting closer and closer to ready-made states of consciousness. Yeah. And, and we have no idea what the effect is. Right. And yeah. 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 There's already, if you say like, okay, with, with meditation, maybe you need like 10 years of hard work with psychedelics, maybe a few months of hard work, you know, with some yeah. bad trips in there and, and, you know, difficulty and suffering. What if it's, you know, 10 minutes and it's just, as soon as it wears off, you just hit the button again and you hit the yeah. button again, you know, what is that? What does that mean for consciousness? What does that mean? for yeah. You know, how much, how much of the suffering is an integral part of the experience versus like a roadblock? And I'm, I'm tempted to say the suffering is, is necessary. Like we need to engage with it, you know, and yeah. if we don't like, I, I just like blissed out robots, like it just doesn't, that seems to sort of scope into Right. Yeah. I mean, I think about the, the sort of history of dopamine um, where it was first sort of considered the pleasure molecule because of this observation that like rats who were given this like lever to trigger dopamine would just push it to the point of death, you know? Yeah. And so scientists saw that and were like, oh, it must, must be really pleasurable. Yeah. Um, and then as we've sort of done more studies and thought more deeply on this, it's really, it's not a pleasure, it's like need, you know, and it's, and, and what's happening with that dopamine is you're just feeling like, there's a reward, but it's, it's like a uh, anticipatory, you know, it's like you, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. It's, it's not pleasurable. Um, yeah. And, and so I feel like you can just observing the behavior, you might think like, Oh, that's, that's going to be nice. And you can imagine humans in these helmets, like just pushing the button to get that feeling, but it's, yeah, you can, you can really missing by a little, lands you in this horrible horrible dystopia yeah. um so yeah i think yeah <laughs> yeah well, I, th I think that's where the what you said earlier as, as your priority i think that's where that comes in it's like looking at the whole process and and trying to understand that the larger context you know and, and seeing it where i think the the danger of looking at things on a molecular level is you can get tricked into thinking that's all there is and then, and i yep. think it's it's really important to say like no this is a sophisticated way of understanding but it's it's one lens it's not the only lens you know and it the i think that's psychedelics are so interesting in that aspect where it's like they can be described in in neurological terms and chemical terms whatever but but the subjective experience is fundamental to it as well like it doesn't, yeah. If you just like hit those switches without having subjective experience, the effect isn't the same. You know. Yep. Nowhere near the same. And and that interplay between the conscious, the subconscious, or the I don't know, the automatic and the aware. I, I don't know how to characterize it exactly, but like it, it makes it so difficult to understand, and, and just like this endless mystery of like, as you say, say like we're. we're playing with the the apparatus that at the same time is, is like determining our whole experience. And it's like, it's this endless feedback loop, you know, where it's like, yeah, it just, it, it seems difficult to imagine ever escaping that, that complexity, you know? Yeah. So yeah. 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 Huh. Um, 
so so you mentioned the the hard problem of consciousness um said you're kind of like pushing up against that a bit like what what are your thoughts on that where on first i guess for, for people who don't know if you could just explain it briefly but then i'm curious yeah so i guess the hard problem of consciousness is can we ever find an explanation for consciousness within consciousness, I guess, is how I would phrase it. Um, whereas we can think of other sort of mental processes like vision, we might be able to, like the easy problems of consciousness, things like like vision or like associating a memory with something we're sensing. Um, we can maybe come up with an explanation that um, a conscious mind can understand and sort of reduces those experiences to computational processes. Um, and we've started doing that for parts of the brain, you know, like we, we understand that the early layers of the visual cortex detect edges and uh, then sort of higher level shapes. And then there is this kind of matching to templates where, where we, uh, access our memory. Um, and those can sort of exist in consciousness as explanations. But uh, the hard problem is, can we find a explanation of consciousness um, that is explicable, that is uh, grokkable, you know, in consciousness? There, there's a bit of a catch 22 here, you know, where can, can the mind fully understand the, the mind? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what is your, your personal <laughs> experience or your research have to? Yeah. To um, on that? I, I think it is hard. <laughs> I do. Cause there are, there are people who deny it, who, who think that, you know, as we explain more and more of the component pieces of, of our mental processes, consciousness will sort of float away. We'll, we'll be, uh, consciousness is just sort of a necessary byproduct of the, the processes that, that we can um, explain. And I mean, I think, I think that may be so in, in this way where, you know, once a system is complicated enough that it, in modeling the future and modeling the world, it has to have a model of itself. Like that might be all you need to get some kind of conscious experience. Um, although the implications of that are then that lots of computational systems have, have some kind of consciousness, even though it's, um, you know, maybe very different from, from what ours are. Yeah. Um, but I still don't, yeah, that's not satisfying to me of, you know, like that, that there would be some subjectivity. I don't see how that's necessary, especially as someone who like builds computational systems. Um, I don't, you, you can very easily it's much more plausible to me that they are just philosophical zombies. Like even if they contain a model of the world, they, um, 
they are not conscious. They are just moving bits around. And somehow the bits we're moving around in our brains lead to this most significant thing, the you know, significance at all, the the feeling that it matters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that is a deep, deep mystery. Yeah. I mean, I think with the, you know, with these drugs and with these computational methods, we can start probing it. We can start sort of um, putting some numbers on on the mystery, but I don't know that we're that it will just resolve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my sense is that your use of the word feeling is, is crucial. And I, it comes back to me to this, this idea of like the nested layers of, of cognition where it's like feeling is uh, an ancient form of cognition of indicating, you know, what's good for us and what's bad for us. And there's, there's calculations implicit in that. And it's, it seems to me like what we call consciousness is communication between these, these layers of cognition. And it's, it's aligning yeah, physical sensation with emotion, with thought, with action. And it's like, if uh, a computational system is unidimensional, only has one, one degree of consciousness, no matter how sophisticated that is, it's not going to feel. Right. It, it, yeah. it will know like, okay, I don't want anyone to unplug me because then I will cease to exist, but it won't feel, you know, and, and feeling to me is just, yeah, it's an artifact of like that primordial computational system, you know, indicating get more of this or get less of that. And, and, but, but yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't get at the richness of it. Right. It, it's, it explains like the surface level, like, okay, the, this is connected to that, but like, yeah, what is, what is the feeling of being a human or a cat or, you know, this human or that human, like that ineffable quality seems like it's, yeah. I don't know if we can ever say anything more than that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh. Okay, well, we're, we're over time. Um, I don't know, do you, do you have anything else you wanna add? Any thoughts, comments, stories? Yeah, um, this was great. I, I really uh, enjoyed the conversation and um, glad glad you reached out. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Thank you very much. Yeah.